This evening in your Bibles, congregation, we invite you to turn to the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 1. We'll be reading from verses 15 through 26 in your pew Bible. You find that on page 1,252. After we read from the inspired, infallible, and errant Word of God, we'll also be reading from one of our confessions, the Belgic Confession, Article 31. And in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that article on page 188. Uh, We speak about the church being governed uh, according to the apostolic example. The apostles, of course, were those unique individuals directly called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to lay the foundation uh, of the church. When we speak about the apostles, we say that sometimes what they give us is prescriptive for how we ought to govern the church. Other times it is descriptive. Prescriptive are simple commands you find, for example, by the apostles. Uh, When Paul especially writes to the churches, he says at times, do this, don't do that. Uh, That's prescriptive. Descriptive is when we are given inspired accounts of how the early church actually was organized and how they ran things, you might say. And what we are given in Acts 1 is an inspired window to look into the early apostolic church selecting office bearers. Uh, And so we read together from the inspired account as we have it in Acts 1, beginning at verse 15, continuing through verse 26. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, a kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office." Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God. We then read in Article 31 of our Belgian Confession, entitled, The Officers of the Church, We believe that ministers of the Word of God, elders and deacons, ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church, with prayer in the name of the Lord, and in good order, as the Word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call, so that he may be assured of his calling 
and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority, no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought, as much as possible, to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do, and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you think a couple years back uh, to our most recent presidential election cycle, we were reminded uh, of the importance of what we have now come to call fair elections. And the introduction tonight certainly is not to open up the can of worms concerning uh, fair elections within the realm of the state or our nation, but the introduction reflecting back upon a few years ago and the presidential election simply serves to show us the importance, the importance uh, of an orderly election of individuals who have positions of authority. And I think all of us would agree that this is important in the realm of the nation, this is important in the realm of the state, and it is. But even more so, this is important in the church. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there must be an orderly election of office bearers. Uh, This is true because the church is the household of God purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you might say that the church has infinite value given the purchase price for her existence. And also the church has a perpetual existence. And not only is her purchase price of infinite amount, her duration is of eternal time. And if we appreciate what the church is, not just simply a social gathering, Uh, not just simply a cooperative gathering of individuals in a certain community, but a body of believers redeemed and united to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we understand and appreciate that here we have the household of God Himself, then we will understand to a measure the importance uh, of a proper selection of office bearers. And so we want to turn our attention to that theme this evening, our belief concerning the selection of office bearers. And just a word that this theme and its points will unfold themselves along with what we have described as both the descriptive passage in Acts 1, where we have the first election of office bearers of the New Testament church. You also have in Acts 6, as many of you no doubt well know, Uh, the institution of the office of deacons, and there also we have a descriptive passage for how those deacons were chosen. Furthermore, we have certain prescriptive passages. You can think of the qualification, the criterias uh, that are listed by Paul to Timothy and also to Titus, and we will also make reference uh, to other scriptural passages uh, that shed light uh, on the selection of office bearers. And we'll notice, first of all, this evening the manner of the selection, and then secondly, the patience for the selection, 
And then third, the esteem with the selection. So what is it that we believe based upon the authority of the Word of God and based upon the revelation of the Word of God concerning the selection of office bearers? First of all, the manner of the selection. We do well, I believe, to continually recommit ourselves to submitting to the authority of the Word of God in all aspects of congregational life. And so as we begin to describe the manner of the selection, uh, we ought to have this desire that every thought of our minds and then every practice of our congregation would ultimately be brought into submission to the authoritative rule of Jesus Christ as revealed within his word. And it is of central importance in the manner of selecting men to be office bearers within the church Uh, that these men be called into office rather than to intrude themselves into office. And, And there's a difference. The difference is this, that for a proper, a proper selection of office bearer, God draws a man. God chooses a man. God calls a man. The man himself does not intrude, does not campaign, does not run a a political campaign to get himself in office. And so here again, the focus is placed entirely upon what God does in and through a a man called to office. And God calls a man through the selection by the church, which is ultimately then the selection by the Lord himself. And so a man is called properly, orderly, into an office— uh, of the New Testament church, which we remind ourselves are three. There is first the minister of the word, and then secondly, there is what we commonly refer to as elders, ruling elders perhaps is a term that some use, and then there are deacons. These three offices are the continuing offices within the New Testament church. Uh, and this selection for men to be placed within these respective offices is done by an overseeing congregation. And now there's all kinds of historical debate behind Article 31. Uh, there is, you know, the, the papacy in view, as Guido de Bray works for the reforming of the church along with the other Protestant reformers. Uh, the Papacy was the development of a hierarchy that centralized itself in the Bishop of Rome as being the head of the church. Uh, There were other various views. Erasianism was a view which says, well, the state ought to appoint men who would then serve in these offices within the church. This was very common in Lutheran churches throughout the 16th, 17th century, as well as in the Netherlands up until the 19th century. Uh, And, of course, you have the Episcopalian structure of church government, and then you have congregationalism, and we don't have the time to go into all of these different uh, divergent views of how individuals come into office, but we simply lay out the biblical basics that the congregation itself, underneath the oversight of the current office bearers, is the implement that is used to draw men into office. And that's why we chose to read from Acts 1. You have here in verse 15 
in the midst of the disciples. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, that is, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the early church, and he says, okay, this is, this is what we need to do. We need to fill a vacancy, a vacancy among the apostleship. Now, certainly the apostles were a temporary office. There are no longer apostles. That temporary office has given way to the permanent office of the ministers of the Word, the elders, and the deacons. But just notice that the vacancy is filled by the congregation itself. And so one of the most fundamental principles of church polity, of biblical church polity, of biblical church government, is that when it comes to the calling of a man to office, the church itself is the means that the Lord is pleased to use to identify those men whom he would have serve. Now notice how the church does it. How the church engages in this important work of filling this vacancy by what I've put down in my notes, a sanctified vote. Uh, notice again that double the vacancies are nominated, you might say. They put forth two names. They needed one man. And what did they then do? They humbled themselves and they prayed earnestly. And here just Scan again our text, verse 23, they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Now, I just want to point out there is apostolic precedence for the way that we ordinarily go through the process of filling vacancies of office bearers. Ordinarily, double the number of men needed is put before the congregation. So there is apostolic precedence. But now notice what they did. They prayed earnestly. And what did they pray? Lord, show us the man whom you have already chosen. And now each of us, we need to, if we're going to be faithful to the Word of God, we need to honestly ask ourselves, do we engage in this vital step corporately as a congregation, but also individually as persons, as families? Uh, especially in, in this time of year and in the months leading up to uh, when we have our election of office bearers, are we earnestly praying, Lord, Show us the men whom you have chosen to serve in the offices of elder and of deacon. I fear that perhaps sometimes this most vital step is overlooked. Earnest prayer, of course, must season every activity that we engage in as a congregation, but especially one so vitally important as the selection of office bearers. And notice the content of the prayer, not, Lord, would this man get in? Because I know that he has this agenda, and I know where he stands on this point. But, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. Now look again at verse 25. You have chosen. The Lord has already chosen. Of course, the Lord knows all things from eternity, and He has decreed all things that will ever come to pass. 
uh, but the selection by the church is just simply the means by which the will of the Lord is revealed. And how does the Lord reveal His will? By a sanctified vote. As the Holy Spirit has come upon the church, uh, they cast their votes, and through those votes the Lord reveals uh, the man whom He has chosen. And then the Lord places within that man's heart, if that man is properly chosen, uh, what we call the internal call, which is then matched by the external call. The internal call, and we'll look at this in regards, in our second point, uh, to Elisha and also to Moses. The internal call is a spiritual compelling of a person's soul so that he feels that he must serve in this office. You know, at, at times, you know, jokes are made. And I understand at some level the jokes. A man will say, oh, I hope I don't get in. I, I, I hope I don't get elected. What would you think of a pastor that said that? I hope they don't call me to preach. I hope they don't want me to teach catechism. When there is the internal call, yes, I will readily acknowledge there will be many, many, many a fear. But there'll be this inescapable drawing, I must serve. I think it's well captured by the Apostle Paul when he says, woe am I if I do not preach the gospel. Now he would say to the Corinthians, I came to you in fear and trembling. Now, there was the, the natural hesitation that even Paul had. But woe am I if I do not fulfill the obligations of this office. And in the hearts and lives of the men called with this internal call, there will be this inescapable burden, and then there will be the providential leading into office. And that comes by what we call the external call, which is especially, of course, then the nomination and the congregation's vote. They prayed, and then they cast their lots or voted, and the lot fell on Matthias. And so we have the description of the manner of the selection of office bearers. Let us not think carnally about this whole process. Let us not think lightly about this whole process, but let us think biblically about this whole process. Well, what then in our second point of this matter of the patience for the selection? Uh, here we're building upon what our Belgic Confession uh, states, uh, that we believe there to be this lawful election the second paragraph of Article 31, so everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call, so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. Uh, there, 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 there ought not be any buying of office. You know, there was the term simony, uh, speaking about uh, Simon the magician later in the book of Acts. Uh, he desired a prominent role in the church. He desired even some of the apostolic power of the church, and he was willing to give money in order to buy this position. And the history of the church sadly testifies to the reality that many a man has sought ecclesiastical office for the wrong motives and, and has sought to gain some type of power, some type of influence, 
some type of prestige by placing himself in the office. And all of this ought to be, this ought to be uh, eliminated from the church so that a man would patiently wait for the Lord to call him into office in an exercise of humility. And now you think in the Old Testament, prior to David, uh, in the Exodus, the great leader of the people of the Lord, Moses. Now why was it that Moses had to function as a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years before he was used by the Lord to lead the people out of of Egypt? Uh, Why was it that Moses uh, didn't right away go knock on Pharaoh's door and say, I'm Moses. I'm going to do something great. I'm going to lead the people out. But for 40 years, he had to exercise himself in humility and patience. And no doubt, he learned many a lesson underneath God's providence as he was engaged. And you can think then of David also, the great leader of of Israel. And he is anointed as king. Samuel says, David, you are the king. But then what does David have to do? He has to wait. He has to wait even while he is persecuted by Saul. He has to run in the wilderness. He has to hide in caves. And now there was the time in which he could, actually there were two times, in which he could have taken the initiative and he could have said, Saul, your days are done. I've got you trapped. And David's own men said, here he is. He's sleeping and you're right there. Take his spear. Stick it to him. You're the anointed. But what did David say? No. I dare not touch the anointed of the Lord, but I will, in essence, humbly wait for the time of God's appointment. Uh, You can think also of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that at approximately age 30 he begins his public ministry? We would often say, "Well, well, why not begin it? Just flowing right out of that day there in the temple at the age of 12, why not just commence? Uh, The answer in all of these, whether it be in regards to Jesus Christ beginning his public ministry at approximately age 30, whether it be David having to be hunted by King Saul for quite some length of time before he assumed the exercise of king, whether it be Moses having to exercise himself as a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness, uh, the answer to all of it is because it was not God's time. And I can sympathize that for some individuals who feel that internal call, that desire to serve the Lord, and yet by providence you are forced to wait. It can be a difficult thing. And yet we believe that a man ought not to intrude in the office, but wait to wait upon the Lord's timing, but not wait with some passive inactivity. Uh, And here again, if you go back to the descriptive passage of Acts 1, these two that were proposed, Joseph, surnamed Justice, and also Matthias, uh, notice what they were doing, verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went and out and among us. So these men, uh, they weren't just passively sitting on the sidelines, but they were actively engaged in this community of disciples, of the followers of Christ. 
And so also, young men and older men, and indeed all persons in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, ought to be actively engaged in finding a good work to do. And in that active engagement, there is even then the training and the fashioning of one's skills and one's abilities to then be of further service, uh, perhaps of broader service, perhaps of more specific service within the ecclesiastical offices. And and I want to say a a word of warning, especially against any type of mentality of, well, I'm not currently an office bearer, so I, I can just sit back inactively in the church and just simply, you know, have this consumer mentality. I'm afraid that the churches in Western civilization are just infected with this passivity, consumerism mentality. Find something to do and do it. And in finding something to do, and I'm referring now uh, some role in the church, some work in the church, perhaps you're not a hand, but perhaps you can be the pinky on the hand. Perhaps you're not a foot, but perhaps you can be one of the toes on the foot. I'm referring, of course, to the analogy of the Apostle Paul in the Corinthian church. Instead of saying, well, if I can't be a hand, I don't want to be anything. Find a role. And young people, don't think that you have to wait until you're older. In your your adolescence, in your early 20s, you have, and, and maybe you don't think this, but you have more energy now than you ever will again in your life. And if you doubt that, you can find someone who's not in their 20s, and you can ask them. And I'm I'm not ignoring the pressures on your life as young people, but the pressures and the stressors are not going to get less as you age. So don't say, well, when I'm 40, then I'll find something to do in the church. Find something to do now. And if you are a male, because we are committed to male office bearers, again, based upon the simple reading of Scripture, you have to do all types of gymnastics with the Scriptures to get away from the exclusive male office bearing. But if you are a young man, Begin the training now to serve the church. Find something to do and do it. Uh, There's also then this point that when a man has been called into office, you can think of the disciples, right? There they were, casting their nets, not just sitting around in their parents' basement playing video games endlessly. They were out, they were active, they were employed, they were industrious. Jesus then called them, and they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their fishing enterprise, because when Jesus Christ, when God himself calls a man, then that man can have the assurance that he himself is in that office, not because of his own strategy and tactics, but because God himself has called him to that office. Office bearing is difficult work. Preaching the gospel is difficult work. I don't say that in an attempt to garner sympathy. I certainly do covet your prayers. But preaching is difficult work. Being an elder is difficult work. 
Now, there indeed are times of great joy in the life of an elder and in the work of the elder, but there are also agonizing times. Being a deacon, you are confronted with difficult circumstances, difficult issues to try to address. But in the midst of all of these difficulties, the man who understands that he has been called by God has a great, a great basis to plead with the Lord. Lord, you have called me to this office. Now, therefore, equip me for the office. You see the difference? If, if, I, if I had wanted in my own selfish desires the pulpit, and if I had said, I am going to pursue the office of ministry for some type of my own selfish desires, I would then stand in the pulpit and say, I wanted to be here. But if I believe that I am only here because God has called me, then I can say, Lord, you called me. I didn't necessarily want to go and do that. I didn't necessarily think that I had all of the gifts and the talents to go do that. But you called me. And again tonight and next week and the week after, your providence is going to lead me into the pulpit. Now, therefore, give me something to say. And the elder can do the same thing. Lord, it wasn't that I selfishly wanted to go to make this family visit or to go make this elder visit or, or go visit with this member uh, who's wayward or, or this person who's struggling. But Lord, you called me to be an elder, so now I go in humble obedience and give me, O oh God, the words to say. And the deacon can say, I didn't want to be selfishly according to my own desires. I didn't want to be in this position but Lord, you called me. And here is this difficult, confusing situation. Here is this family that, that has a need. And I have to go and I have to make this visit. And I have to call upon this widow. And I don't know what to say, but Lord, I'm going. Because you called me. Now, therefore, give me the words to say. And give me the wisdom. See, this is the difference between intruding in office and being called to office. Having exercised this patience when a man is called in a biblical manner, both he himself and the congregation may know that this call is from God. And that congregation ought to lead to what we consider in our third point, the esteem with the selection. If we believe what we've laid out in points one and two, that men who are office bearers do not intrude themselves into office, but they patiently wait, and the Lord, using the congregation, reveals men whom He has chosen. If we believe that to be true, there ought to be great esteem for the office and for the office bearers. Uh, and here you'll notice that our Belgian Confession is biblically based as it paraphrases, almost a direct quote, but paraphrases 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13. Here we have what we call a prescriptive passage. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonians, and, and with apostolic authority he says to them, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and we urge you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. If we can break it down and summarize, Paul is saying, these men who are office bearers in your midst, 
They are over you in the Lord. Recognize that. And view them with great esteem and great weight in love for their work's sake. And then there is this closing exhortation, be at peace among yourselves. Have you ever reckoned with the thought that some individuals struggle with being an office bearer because of the way congregations treat office bearers? But you read through Israel of old and Moses. When I read some of the grumbling of Israel, I'm with Moses striking the rock instead of speaking at the rock. The reason some men can be very, very, very hesitant to picking up the mantle of ecclesiastical office is because of the way at times, congregations view these individuals. Esteem them highly for their work's sake. But notice that our Belgic Confession, it adds this little phrase, and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, and fighting. I'm sorry, earlier there, as much as possible to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem. There are these two office bearers that are nominated and Matthias is chosen, but don't forget that Acts 1 verse 15, Peter begins by recounting another office bearer, Judas. Did Peter hold Judas in esteem? Did the author of Acts hold Peter or rather hold Judas in esteem. Notice verse 17. He was numbered with us. Peter is saying, Judas, he walked with us. He saw the miracles we saw. But I would submit to you that Peter could not hold Judas in esteem. Because he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter didn't just sugarcoat it and say, oh, Judas, an office bearer, a wonderful office bearer. As much as is possible, the men who serve faithfully, not perfectly, no, of course not, but the men who serve faithfully, hold them in esteem for their work's sake. And when you hold an office bearer in esteem for the work's sake, that will flow out of recognizing that he has been appointed for a specific purpose. Your spiritual well-being. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ give us pastors? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ give us elders? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ give us deacons? The same reason, in essence, he gave us parents for our own well-being. Search the scriptures and ask yourself if these things be true. And I believe that if you search the scriptures honestly, you will have to reckon with this fact. That the Lord Jesus Christ 
has our own well-being in mind when he gives us faithful office bearers. Esteem them highly for their work's sake. I, I, I trust that some of you, at least one of you, and maybe this responsibility falls upon my wife if I ever begin to use personal references too often, but I can't help but think in the medical field of the surgeon who performed my brain surgery. I only met him a handful of times. I don't know a whole lot about him. But I can assure you, I think very, very, very highly of him for his work's sake. And I can think in my own life of ministers who I think very, very, very highly of, not because they're men of perfection, but because they preach the gospel to me. And I can think of elders who I hold very, very, very high. Again, not because they were perfect, but because they faithfully taught me catechism. And I can think of deacons that I esteem highly because they came with words of encouragement and cheer and comfort in times of need. And I'm sure you can think also of such persons. And the Scriptures say, esteem them highly for their work's sake. As much as possible. No grumbling. No quarreling. Well, when you read the description there, fighting, I often think of the family dinner table. And, and, and our house, I think, is an orderly house. Much more to do with my, my wife's parenting than my own parenting. But, the, you know, most families have those times in which the dinner table just seems to go off the rails. And, you know, and whatever the circumstances may be, the, the kids start bickering and fighting, quarreling. I don't know of any father, any God-fearing father who sits back and looks upon such a state of affairs and says, ah, isn't this nice? Isn't this wonderful? The kids are fighting. There's all kinds of quarreling, clamoring, bickering. This is what I delight in. No, usually the father says, that's enough. Stop. And the Heavenly Father looks upon the church. And sometimes I wonder, what does he see? Or maybe more to the point, what does he hear? Does he hear grumbling with the office bearers? Complaining about the office bearers? Fighting with the office bearers? P.Y. DeYoung, he writes as follows, in connection with this article, and more specifically with this passage, it does not demand that everyone must praise the decisions which are taken as wise and advantageous. To paraphrase, it doesn't mean you have to agree with every decision. Yet, he goes on, so long as these decisions do not plainly conflict with God's Word, believers are to abide by them readily and cheerfully. You can think of Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey those who rule over you. 
and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Uh, imagine for a moment, you know, we used to hire babysitters or maybe have grandma babysit for free. And then when the older kids got older, they would babysit. And, and one of the first questions that parents often have when they come back from maybe a date night, just mom and dad, they ask the babysitter, how were the kids? How were the kids? Now imagine for a moment that the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, were to ask our elders, how were the spiritual children? How was the flock? In our home, those questions for the babysitter usually would be, did they behave? Did they listen? Did they go to bed on time? I can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 13, verse 17, asking elders, did your parish members, did they esteem you? Did they respect you for your work's sake? Did they receive your good admonishments with humility? Did they display that they recognized that you were there not on your own account, but because I had called you? And now I leave it up to each one of us to examine our own hearts and to contemplate what the answer would be. I just ask, would it be a favorable report? What the elders say? He, she was a joy to look after, Lord. Or would the elders say, yeah, there was a lot of complaining, a lot of quarreling, a lot of fighting. If we believe Scripture to be true, we also must submit to it in this regards. And so we just simply quote again from 1 Thessalonians 5. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly for their work's sake. And then this closing exhortation as we consider this whole matter about the selection of office bearers. Be at peace among yourselves. Amen.